Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host Ash Sarker and with me tonight is James Medway. Coming up tonight, another Tory minister has come up with some terrible advice for those struggling right now. The government's plan to house migrants on a barge is facing delays and the Bank of England interest rate has gone up again. We'll be discussing what that means for the economy, so stay tuned for all of that. Here's today's first story. Rishi Sunak has jetted off to his Santa Monica Beach penthouse for a family holiday, leaving his North Yorkshire mansion unattended. That's when Greenpeace sensed an opportunity. In the early hours of the morning, climate activists scaled the Prime Minister's constituency home and unfurled oil black banners. The action was a protest against Sunak's pledge to, quote, max out North Sea oil and gas. Activists also raised a sign reading, Rishi Sunak, oil profits or our future. Appearing on Sky News, Greenpeace campaigner Amy McCarthy explained the action. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Your colleagues are still there live uh, on top of the Prime Minister's home. Talk, talk me through why they're there. Yeah, so we're there today to bring home to the Prime Minister the devastating consequences of his decision to unleash this drilling frenzy in the North Sea, just at a time when we're seeing, like, real impacts of climate change playing out across the world, you know, wildfires in Greece, people having to evacuate from their holidays, droughts across the world, flooding, which is killing people. Um, There's absolutely no excuse for the Prime Minister to be doubling down on oil and gas just at the time when we need to be really quickly transitioning away from it. Perhaps we'll dive in in a moment about whether it's a drilling frenzy and whether he's doubling down or, or just increasing things a little bit. But but uh, you said there's no excuse for that decision. Um, is there any excuse for breaking into the grounds of his home? Um, to be clear, we didn't break anything. Uh, no, no, but you've, uh... you've trespassed on on literally the grounds of his home and on his home. We're, we're looking at the pictures now. This is a private residence meant to be a safe place for him, for our Prime Minister, no less. Justify yeah. why it's OK to do that. Because this one is on him. Rishi Sunak is our Prime Minister. He, it's his decisions that are leading this country. And he's absolutely putting us all at risk by deciding to go after more fossil fuels when the world needs to urgently be transitioning away from them. The science has been very clear for years now that no government anywhere in the world can drill for new fossil fuels. A really striking feature of this protest is how little the media actually want to talk about the policy that it targets. Instead, we're getting a lot of hand-wringing about the Prime Minister's privacy. And look, just a reminder, he and his family weren't there. They were in Santa Monica. In response to the action, a source at 10 Downing Street said this. We make no apology for taking the right approach to ensure our energy security, using the resources we have here at home, so we are never reliant on aggressors like Vladimir Putin for our energy. We are also investing in renewables, and our approach supports thousands of British jobs. James, are we seeing the impact of Just Stop Oil here? Because it seems to me that the Overton window on protest has shifted for the climate movement and Greenpeace has to escalate just so they don't look like, you know, little goody two-shoes. Well, maybe maybe that's some of that. I mean, I think the other sort of thing we're seeing, and, and it, it perhaps is a bit of a worry, is that, look, on, on, on an issue like, are we going to start drilling across the North Sea? What you really want and what we'd like to get to ideally is very, very large numbers of people protesting about this, including 
actually people involved in the North Sea oil and gas industry and all parts of the supply chain there. Because if you go out and actually talk to some of the workers who are involved in this, and plenty of people, including their unions, have done, of course people will support a transition out of fossil fuels and they want to put their skills to use in other industries, in renewable technology, in building offshore winds, wind farms, all this sort of thing. So that, I think, is what we want to get to. But also, of course, I mean, the government response is completely nonsensical. We don't rely on Vladimir Putin for our energy. There's the tiniest of tiny fractions, even before the invasion of Ukraine, of gas uh, came from Russia into Britain. We didn't rely on uh, Russia for the gas. We relied on Norway and Qatar and, and a few other places. So it's kind of this whole thing, the rhetoric they're trying to use around this, I'm afraid, is very significantly a cover for the idea that fossil fuel companies should just be allowed to carry on making as much profit as they possibly can out of the North Sea for as long as they possibly can. And that, I think, is what Greenpeace are quite right to protest about. Why do you think we've not seen that kind of mass mobilisation against this announcement? Is it because we're generally going through a period of maybe being a bit, you know, bummed out? People don't feel that they've got any hope that things can change for the better. Um, or, or is it something else? Like, Why hasn't it been a massive flashpoint? I think there's a couple of things in that. Look, I think part of it is that general sense of a slight sort of maybe demoralization or a slightly deflated feeling I think people have had coming out at the end of last year where, you know, you had, you hit the strikes, you hit things like enough is enough. You had actually going a little bit further back, you had very large protests, Extinction Rebellion, others were organizing. And it's kind of run into this sort of, actually, it's a political problem, a strategic problem, which is that the government has made some noises about wanting to do green things and is now turning rapidly against it. So perhaps you have to adjust and we all need to adjust where we're focusing our energy and how we're going to protest about this and the kind of movement we're going to build. The government is trying to drive a wedge between people who will say in the first instance they really care about the environment and people who say something like, not unreasonably, by the way, the, the cost of living crisis really is actually affecting them. And it does matter how much they have to pay for a tank of petrol or whatever it costs to drive their van in London or whatever it might be. And the government is pushing hard to drive a wedge there. The real challenge is not allowing that wedge to turn into something really serious. So you end up with this split between one part of what could be a really big movement against all of this, which is a bunch of people who are going to go and protest about the environment and whatever different form that may take. And then on the other hand, a bunch of people who are really affected by the cost of living crisis, the best long-term solution to which is investing in renewable energy and who could be allies in this, but in fact, the government's pushing hard to try and drive those two people apart. So it's a problem and it's a sort of strategy we need to overcome, I suppose, if you're thinking about how to build a movement as a whole. I mean, that is something which I think about a lot, which is why don't I hear the climate movement saying loudly, repeatedly, constantly banging the drum that the greenest is the cheapest. It's the cheapest way to generate electricity, solar and wind. We've got you know, plenty of wind in this country and that all of the sorts of measures that you're looking at from insulating homes to getting people to rely more on a really well-funded and affordable public transportation network, that is going to bring down your cost of living. It doesn't have to be a case of, you know, London versus the rest of the country either. If you go, actually, the kind of public transport infrastructure that we've got here should be something which is available to everybody. Um, but look, I also understand that the climate movement doesn't get a fair hearing, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about now. In the wake of the Greenpeace protest at Rishi Sunak's North Yorkshire mansion, representatives from the organisation have been speaking to the media. What a great opportunity for journalists to talk about the climate or about the negative effects of North Sea fossil fuel expansion. This was the co-executive director of Greenpeace UK, Ariba Hamid, on the Jeremy Vine show. 
Is this something that you were aware was going to happen? Did you sign this off? Yes, I did. And I think that we were also aware, like the rest of the country, that the Prime Minister and his family were not going to be at home. In fact, this morning when our activists went there, they knocked on the door. Uh, there was no answer. There was no visible security. And we have Greenpeace uh, labels behind all the, all the activists taking action. So this was done with utter concern for safety and with meticulous care. And the reason why it was done is because Rishi Sunak, the decision that he has made to max out North Sea oil and gas is a personal one. The buck stops with him. He's the prime minister and he has decided in the middle of a climate emergency to actually pour more fuel on this fire. But you're going direct to his fire. As she said, you could have went to number 10 Downing Street. That would have been a bigger political statement, would it not, than going to his private residence? I mean, how on earth would it be a bigger political statement at Downing Street? Protests happen all the time outside the gates of Downing Street on Whitehall, and nobody takes any notice unless something particularly spicy happens. And if the host meant that the actual building of number 10 would be the better target, the obvious point is that you wouldn't be able to get near it. You would just be shot straight away. And I also think that there is a point here about holding Rishi Sunak personally responsible. You don't just get to hide behind your job and say, okay, well, this is what I'm doing in a professional capacity, but let me enjoy my life. Let me have a lovely holiday. Let me feel personally undisturbed. Well, no, you're consigning the world to devastation. I think people sitting on your roof is kind of the least of it. Anyway, I wonder, did you pick up on the start of the host's question? Were you aware this was going to happen? Did you sign this off? As if this is completely beyond the pale. But let's go back to the clip and see if there's any more pearl clutching we can detect. As she says, everybody knows what that now looks like. It's identifiable. The Where the Prime Minister lives any, was not, not a secret anyway. And again, the important bit here is that he's not in the country. And this is a personal not decision. We have the past. That We've also in the past uh, delivered petitions and hand-ins outside number 10. I, I would We've like to interject if I can, Ariba. I think it's important that we state some facts. On a global international platform, it was not known where his children and his wife live. You have now let the whole world know that actually this is where he resides. And I think for many parents, it's not about the adult. It's actually whatever work you are doing, fine, target that person in their place of their, where they work, not their home. Because now, not only do the world know anyone who doesn't like him, his children, the fact that they are people of colour are going to target that property. Can I just actually say, I, I, I very much agree with Shay, but I would say there's a more fundamental point here, Ariba, and I think you should consider your position as a consequence of this. You have endorsed, so it appears to me, criminal behaviour. This is an act of criminality. You've trespassed on somebody's mm -hmm. property. You have somehow, uh, it may only be a temporary thing that you've done, but you have desecrated, albeit in a temporary way, somebody's property, somebody's private property, and it doesn't matter. Pr I appreciate the point as being a parent, but there'll be a lot of people that are watching who aren't parents, who aren't, who, who don't have that family concern. You, you are basically endorsing the right for somebody to trespass on somebody's private property and do what they like because you don't agree with their policies. It would be wrong to do it as Downing Street as well, because again, it would be an act of trespass. But fundamentally, for somebody like yourself to say, we signed it off, I think you should seriously consider let, what you're doing and what, what your position let is. Everybody
I always find Angela Epstein really funny because she always looks like she's delivering you some bad news about your cystitis infection. I thought that was a really ridiculous clip, to be honest, because I think it's totally fair enough to debate tactics. I think it's totally fair enough to debate where the line is, where that ends. But the thing about this kind of media format is that it incentivizes panelists to come up with the most histrionic responses possible. So Shay saying, oh, but what about the people that don't like them because they're people of color? I mean, I just think that that's actually quite a cynical and tacky weaponization of racism there. You don't have Rishi Sunak being let off desecrating the only planet that we have because he's a person of color desecrating the only planet we have, that's not what the panelists wanted to discuss. And the idea that the director of Greenpeace should, quote, consider her position for signing off a highly effective and, I believe, necessary intervention. I mean, why? Because it took the argument to the prime minister's doorstep. And look, a a criticism, which is constantly leveled at Just Stop Oil, is that they target the wrong people. So instead of inconveniencing hardworking Brits, they should take their protest to the politicians who make the decisions. But look what happens when you do. Let's continue. What Ariba seems to fail to acknowledge or is choosing not to, or maybe the line isn't clear, is I have asked her, and and Shay has in in a different sort of way, if it's okay to endorse criminal behaviour because it's the Prime Minister. It's a very simple question. Uh, I'd love to know what the answer is because maybe I'm misunderstanding. Ariba. What I'm endorsing is holding people who are making decisions (laughs) that are terrible for all of us to account. This is one way of doing it. This is one way of doing it, to take the message to his home. The impacts of climate, we are going to feel in our homes as well. This is a personal choice that he has made. Therefore, our decision to deliver this message to him personally, to bring it home, as it were. Whose side is he on? Is he on the side of big oil and their burgeoning obscene profits? Or is he on the side of ordinary people who are struggling to pay their bills? So is it okay to let his tyres down? Is it okay to let his tyres down? because of all the things you just said. We're not having that conversation. We're having a conversation about bringing a message home, which is about the decision he has taken on Nazi oil and gas. And that is what we're questioning. With the greatest of respect, that that is rather splitting hairs. I appreciate the passion of your argument. I understand, as Shay said herself, this is not about the the nature of protecting the planet. Forget about that for a moment. We all are in agreement we have to protect the planet. What I would say is that I'm, I'm just baffled and disappointed and struggling to understand why you find it so hard to say this is criminal behaviour and we're okay with that. Forget about the planet for a moment. Forget about the planet for a moment because, you know, we're, we're all in agreement something needs to be done. Just don't do anything. I mean, I think that's such a telling response. Forget about the planet for a moment because then what that does is that it deliberately decon- decontextualizes the conversation. So instead of having quite a specific conversation where you go, look, we're on course to miss our target for keeping global heating at an average of 1.5 degrees. That is going to make things worse. You're going to have frequent, more extreme weather events, but you're not going to be rendering vast swathes of the world uh, uninhabitable. In that context, where we're on course to miss that target, where we're developing new fossil fuel extraction, which means that we're going to be undoing all the work that we've done to cut our emissions, what's morally justifiable? And I think that people aren't necessarily going to agree, but at least you can have an adult conversation. Instead of that, you have to go, well, pretend the context doesn't exist. Pretend that this existential threat 
to human life doesn't exist. So then I can condemn you the way I would as if we weren't talking about climate change. And of course, when we talk about what's morally permissible and morally justifiable, it does shift with the context. Generally, I would say killing people, bad. If I had a time machine, I'd go back and I'd kill baby Hitler, right? Wouldn't do that for everyone, would do that because of a very specific context. Um, I'm being facetious, but I'm only being marginally less idiotic than the people on that show. So the conclusion of the debate playing out in the media is that it's wrong to stage actions that involve ordinary people. And it's also wrong, maybe it's even more wrong, to stage actions that involve the politicians whose policies are driving the climate catastrophe. As much as it pains me, I want to play one more clip from that show. Here, the host begins by reading out a message from a member of the public. Sharon on Facebook says they are terrorists. This is referring to Greenpeace, Ariba. No weapons but causing fear and distress. I want to keep our planet safe, but these tactics are not acceptable. So online people, you know, comparing you to terrorists. Well, we knocked on the door and had a nice chat with the house staff. <laughs> uh, we, we knew that he wasn't there. This is a peaceful protest. Uh, we have a history of peaceful protests. So I would think that's an absurd comparison. It, 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 a history of peaceful protests, I mean, peaceful perhaps, but, you know, we on this show have now spent several minutes discussing the, your methods of protest mm. and very little about the oil and gas that you're protesting about. So would it be fair to say that perhaps your methods of protest are not um, are, are not providing the impact and the effect that you would have wanted? So you can see the absurdity of the media machine in action here. You've got one comment from a viewer, which the producers of the show picked out themselves. This one comment means that Ariba Hamid has to entertain the frankly laughable claim that Greenpeace are terrorists. And then to top it off, the host then blames the editorial framing of the issue on the guest. So they spent 16 minutes talking about the Greenpeace action. Almost all of it focused on the tactics, not Sunak's oil and gas expansion. And that was their editorial choice, not Greenpeace's. And let's not forget, if Greenpeace, like Just Stop Oil, had not decided to take the attention-grabbing action like this, they wouldn't even be sitting in the studio with a chance to be heard. Is there any kind of protest that would be acceptable to the British media? Well, it doesn't look like it, does it? I mean, I must say that the sort of drift of the, the conversation here actually has quite a, an ominous, something underneath it that, that's quite ominous is, is this sort of authoritarianism, the incipient authoritarianism about it. There are a bunch of people doing a peaceful protest of the kind, exactly as Ariba said, that Greenpeace have always done. They were set up to do these sort of environmental stunts. You know, that's what they've done for like 40, 50 years now. Getting referred to as terrorists, the sort of calls that you start to see knocking around for Just Stop Oil to be banned and this sort of thing. You can kind of see where the politics lines up in this. That it gets increasingly difficult to protest. And then you start to move into like, oh, well, actually, these organisations themselves, they're a problem that we need to clamp down on. These groups of people organising and talking about these things in particular is, is a problem. So no, on that level, it doesn't look like any uh, protests are acceptable. Although, of course, some of us with longer memories might remember the road fuel protests of the early 2000s or the Countryside Alliance, when, of course, there were a very different set of people protesting against, at the time, the Labour government, uh, in line with, actually, some of what our esteemed press was saying about, you know, the need to cut uh, fuel oil taxes, the need to protect our countryside as the Countryside Alliance defined it much nicer treatment in the press, despite all sorts of things they were doing that in different circumstances, the people in that panel would have said, oh, it's criminal, oh, it's illegal, oh, how terrible. But of course they don't. So sometimes, of course, protesters do turn up and they do get a much, much kinder treatment than the kind of stuff you're seeing here. Let's move on to our next story. The Bank of England has raised interest rates again. 
In the 14th consecutive rise since December 2021, the rate now stands at 5.25%. That's the highest it's been since 2009. The rise could have been bigger, but at just 0.25%, it reflects a drop in inflation. In June, inflation fell to 7.9%, a bigger drop than many analysts expected. But despite aggressive action from the Bank of England, that figure has been moving downwards relatively slowly, from a high of around 11% in October last year. Prices in Britain are still rising faster than other advanced economies like Japan, the US and the Eurozone. And at the same time, our interest rates are higher than in Japan and Europe. The US interest rate is currently the same as ours. So what can we expect over the coming months? Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey laid out his forecast. So starting from the, with the near-term outlook, this chart shows the evolution of consumer price inflation and its components since 2018. It shows that inflation has come off the peak in October last year and that it continues to fall over the rest of this year in our near-term projection. That's the piece shown in the shaded part of the chart. Now, this fall can be attributed in large part to a fall in contribution from energy. Fuel prices have declined and electricity and gas prices have stabilized, albeit at a higher level. The dark orange bars in this chart show how the contribution from energy prices is falling and turning negative, we think, in the coming months. Now, given Ofgem's price cap on electricity and gas bills and the way it slows down the pass-through of wholesale energy prices to consumer bills, we expect inflation to take a further step down in the July data, which will be published in two weeks' time. We think that will come down to around 7% at that point, followed by another larger step down in October's data, which will be published in November, to around about 5% on that basis. Now, this more gradual pass-through also substantially helps to explain the difference between current headline inflation in this country and in the euro area, where wholesale energy prices feed through more directly to consumer prices. Where there is more uncertainty is around the time it will take the other non-energy components of the consumer price, of consumer price inflation to come down as well. Price inflation for food and non-alcoholic beverages has been very high. But it does appear to have peaked. And as you can see in this chart, there are signs in the monthly figures that it has started to ease. And evidence collected by the bank's regional agents suggests that a moderation in food input prices is being passed through the supply chain to consumer prices. So we do expect that food price inflation will come down gradually over the rest of this year. The new interest rate is bad news for mortgage holders and will have a knock-on effect for renters too. Speaking on Newsnight, Torsten Bell of the Resolution Foundation explained where the impact would be felt. The underlying thing is that the British consumer and mortgage holder is about to get stuffed. And is about half the pain has come through and about half the pain is still and ahead of us. And how long is that pain ahead of us? About another two years to come through in full because mm -hmm. some people remortgaged at five-year mortgages you know, reasonably recently. So even if they had some of the pain already, if, when, the, when they have to remortgage, it may well still be at a higher rate. So on our modelling, half the pain is still to come. And we're talking about a lot of pain for some households, particularly concentrated amongst richer households, yes, because they're more likely to have mortgages. But of the ones that will struggle most, they're people with mortgages but on lower incomes. And it's there we'll see the really acute stress. So half the pain has come through, but half the pain is still to come. And there won't just be pain when it comes to housing. The government has been pretty clear that they wouldn't mind a recession to, and I hate this term, 
loosen the labour market. What that really means is increased unemployment. Torsten Bell posted this graph on social media after the rate announcement. It shows successive Bank of England projections for unemployment. This month, unemployment rose to 4%, but the bank's own forecast sees it rising to nearly 5% by 2026. A 1% increase doesn't sound like much, but that's around 350,000 people out of work. The threat of increased joblessness led the TUC General Secretary Paul Novak to say this. This conservative government is flirting with a recession. Instead of delivering a real plan to get us out of this living standards nightmare, ministers are hiding behind the Bank of England. Make no mistake, the Chancellor is sitting on his hands while the economy runs into a wall and it will be working people who pay the price. Setting us on course for another economic shock is reckless, not responsible. The decision to raise interest rates again has been met with criticism from both the right and the left. Senior economist at the Institute for Public Policy Research, Carsten Jung, said this, The UK economy is weakening, the labour market is slowing down, and productivity is falling. Increasingly, there is a realisation that the Bank of England is already overdoing it. By raising interest rates to 5.25%, the bank is tightening the screws too much and causing excessive harm for households and businesses. Interest rates might well be more than a percentage point too high now. Instead of further rate rises, we need a more balanced approach to tackling inflation using more government support. Countries like Spain have kept energy prices lower, temporarily limited rent increases, and tackled excessively high profits through taxation. Their inflation rate has recently fallen back to target. The UK should take inspiration from their example. Meanwhile, the right-wing Institute for Economic Affairs said this. Money and credit growth have already slowed sharply and other leading indicators of inflation have weakened, including commodity prices and evidence from business surveys. It would have made more sense to pause to assess the impact of the large increases in rates that have already taken place, as other central banks have done. The UK economy is like a frog, slowly being cooked by ever higher interest rates. By raising the temperature further now, the bank risks doing too much and, once again, only realising its mistake when it is too late. However, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt thinks we're on the right path. Any rise in interest rates is a worry for families with mortgages, for businesses with loans. But underneath uh, that decision is a forecast that says that this time next year, inflation will be 2.8% and we will have avoided recession And what the Bank of England government is saying is that we have a plan that is bringing down inflation solidly, robustly and consistently. So the plan is working. But what we have to do as a government is make sure we stick to that plan. We don't veer around like a shopping trolley. We stick to that plan so that families and businesses can start to feel the benefits of that plan actually working. So, James, is the Bank of England just going to keep smashing the interest rates button, regardless of whether it actually works? Well, for the time being, yes. Uh, Look, they're probably going to slow down on the rate of how much they're doing this, not because the plan is working. And and listening to Andrew Bailey, the governor, you you, you can see that he kind of knows that it's not really working when he says, oh, well, you know, a great deal of this is due to energy prices. Yeah, the entirety or close to the entirety of this is due to energy prices coming down. Energy prices coming down is nothing to do with Bank of England putting interest rates up. It's it's to do with what's happening in in global markets over the last year or so. Energy market, energy prices have been coming down since last 
Saugus uh, is absolutely nothing to do with what the Bank of England does fiddling there with interest rates. So that's just sort of happening automatically. He's also saying food inflation has come down a bit. Kind of true. Now, it has to be said that some of the signs on this from extreme weather, from failed harvest, from the fact that harvests in Italy look like they're 60% down on what they were last year, from the fact you've got drought across Spain, from the fact all these places produce food and can't produce as much food. I don't think food inflation is going to come down quite as much as the Bank of England wishes. But again, nothing to do with interest rates. The way interest rates are supposed to work is that it is supposed to drain demand out of the economy, stop people spending so much money, so that when they spend less money, the shops and the businesses they might spend money at don't employ so many people. And when they employ fewer people, there's more unemployment and everyone's too scared to ask for a pay rise. That's the mechanism they want. So they want to induce or get as close as possible to recession to frighten people into asking for lower pay rises. Because behind this is the mad belief that what we're seeing right now with inflation is the fact that people have too much money and they're all paid too much. And that's why inflation's going up. It's nonsensical. No part of this model works, but it's the one they have. And it's the one they're going to cling to. So I'm afraid we're probably going to have to sit through a bit more of these sort of, you know, uh, lugrid uh, speeches from Andrew Bailey and, and other such people talking about these things. Lots of people who will be watching the show tonight aren't mortgage holders. They'll be renters. Um, how will this increase in interest rates affect them? Well, this is where it gets into a certain amount of uncertainty because it depends on what an awful lot of those, those incredibly large number of landlords we have now, particularly through buy-to-let and particularly the ones who have really quite tight margins. Now, I'm not asking people to be particularly sympathetic about uh, their landlord or, or any landlord in particular here, but often the profits they're making on the difference between what you can charge in rent and what you have to pay on your mortgage it's not actually that much. So it kind of depends what those, those landlords start to do and how they behave in response to all this. What we've seen over the last year, of course, is that rental prices going up and up, even as uh, house prices are starting to, to fall uh, more generally. And that may continue for some period of time. You might see that tension playing out. What Carsten Young said from the IPPR when he said, look to Spain and look to Spain, which now has one of the lowest inflation rates uh, in the EU. And it's got that because they went and they controlled energy prices really quite aggressively, and they controlled rental prices. And that's how they pulled down the rate of inflation. You can find Belgium, you can find France, you can find a few other places doing similar things. That's what we could and should be doing if you're concerned about inflation. What we're doing instead, I'm afraid, is sort of, at best, it's flapping about. At worst, it is exactly as the TUC says, going to get us into a recession. The other thing about rental prices, as my colleague Rivka Brown found out when she went to a national landlords conference, is that people put up the price of rent just because they see other people doing it. So she spoke to landlords who were saying, well, look, I'm not directly impacted by increases in interest rates, but I've seen the other guy put his rents up, so I'm going to do the same thing. So this idea that landlords are only responding to their personal circumstances, horseshit, they move as a herd. Um, over on Twitch, Carl Alexander Rosser says, given that it takes around 18 months for interest changes to work through the economy, the inflation rate dropping is unconnected with interest rates. I mean, we already know this type of inflation cannot be fixed by interest rates, but it doesn't even work within the Bank of England's own ideological framework. Um, James, what do you what do you make of that? That it takes a while for interest rates to work through. Yeah, it's right. And also the, the other bit is, is that what, what the economists call the transmission mechanism isn't as strong as it used to be for, for a simple reason, that there's just so many people now, often older people just own their homes outright. 
I mean, incredible numbers. It's the largest single kind of uh, tenure that we have for households. About a third of people own their home outright. So interest rates and do whatever. It doesn't affect them. They don't have to pay a mortgage. So in other words, even when you're jamming the interest rates up, it's not actually feeding into what happens in the rest of the economy, which means, of course, you have to lean harder and harder on a smaller number of people who are affected by this if you want that interest rate effect to work. No, part of this works, right? The models the Bank of England is using, the stuff they're relying on, and all these other big economic institutions doesn't fit the world that we live in today. They're still clinging to it because, lo and behold, actually, these things kind of work out in a certain direction, let's say, over time. And the direction is you protect capital, you protect property, and that means you're going to have to lean on labor. You're going to have to lean on people who work. And that is ultimately how fiddling about with interest rates plays out when you say we're doing it to deal with inflation. Let's move on to the next story. As the Conservatives ramp up plans to house asylum seekers on a converted barge, they've run into criticism from refugee charities, the Health and Safety Executive and the Fire Brigades Union about whether the barge is fit for purpose. So what's the government's strategy for dealing with these concerns? Why, it's accusing their detractors of being politically motivated. This was Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden on the Today programme. Just to press you on the barge, because there has been a lot of concern about that, are you satisfied there's no fire safety issues because the uh, Fire Brigades Union are very worried about that concern? Well, of course, we'll take into account uh, those concerns, and that's exactly what we're doing. I I would just gently say the the Fire Brigades Union has donated £850,000 to the Labour Party since 2010, is affiliated to the Labour Party. And I'm afraid what we see with this is exactly what we saw uh, with trying to pass the legislation earlier this year through okay. Parliament. There are many obstacles but is placed it just in our way. The, is it just the FBU, though? Because on this. Is it just the FBU? Because we've also been hearing that the Health and Safety Executive has made a late intervention. Well, we are confident that we will be able to address all of these concerns. I'm absolutely certain of that. And I'm absolutely certain we will be able to get people on this vessel in the coming weeks. Mm, A covert Labour Party plot. So what were the criticisms raised by the FBU? This is from a statement published on their website demanding a meeting with the Home Secretary. Firefighters would be called upon to respond to any fires aboard the Bibby Stockholm. The union is concerned about a potential lack of ingress and exit points, narrow corridors and doorways, and increased occupancy. The barge was originally built to house 222 people, but is now expected to house more than 500. The FBU has already criticised the government's plans to exempt asylum seeker accommodation from requirements for an HMO licence. The HMO licensing process gives local authorities a duty to check that adequate safety measures and equipment is in place. So there's nothing in here to suggest that the FBU are politically motivated in their criticism. While they do go on to condemn the government's broader approach in making life miserable for asylum seekers, the substance of their complaint is about things which are directly relevant to fire safety. And of course, this is a fact that Oliver Dowden chooses not to acknowledge. What the FBU is saying here is really significant. The government defends their plan to house migrants on the Bibby Stockholm barge by saying that other countries do the exact same thing. They take great pains to point out that this exact same ship was used by Germany for the very same purposes. But what they don't mention is that it was designed for fewer than half the number of people that the government intend to house. And when you remember what conditions were like at Manston Asylum Centre last year, overcrowded, unsafe and inhumane, 
it's not a great leap of imagination to think that a floating prison stuffed to the gills with people isn't going to turn out well. And while the media don't always have the best record on covering refugees and asylum seekers, it does seem like some of these concerns are cutting through. This is a headline from BBC News today. Bibby Stockholm, asylum barge, not a death trap, Minister Grant Shapps says. Now, I'm no Malcolm Tucker, but this isn't what you'd call a PR coup for the government. You're asking a lot of questions that are answered by my not a death trap t-shirt. Oliver Dowden has said that asylum seekers are going to be housed on the Bibby Stockholm in a matter of weeks. But James, did you think that the government would have expected that the coverage would be this critical in the run-up to their big set hostile environment piece? You don't, you'd assume not, to be honest with you. They they keep doing this stuff because they think they get a nice free hit against, you know, various assorted political enemies, which the Oliver Dowden was naming primarily as, as the tremendously left-wing and, and woke uh, Labour Party. Uh, so they can get a free hit on this. And then, unfortunately, the, the, the schemes then turn into, run into a whole load of, uh, well, obviously, fairly obvious legal problems in the case of the Rwanda deportation flights. And, and in this one, just fairly obvious practical problems, like you are basically creating a death trap and anybody with any concern for what this might look like does in fact have a concern and will make it uh, fairly clear. So it's, it's a sort of free hit um, some weeks ago and this all looks great. And then somewhere down the line when you actually have to implement any of these increasingly sort of ludicrous, and, and ludicrous is too nice, I mean, it's actually quite brutal and horrible schemes. When you actually have to implement the things, you run into a whole load of legal and or practical difficulties. So forward planning, perhaps not the best from the Home Office on, on any of this stuff, but uh, I would assume they didn't want it to be literally described as a death trap because increasingly that's what it looks like it is uh, on the BBC or anywhere else. No. It's going to be topped by something even nastier, even more brutal, even more ludicrous, even more impractical because the government is like a greyhound that's chasing a rabbit. The rabbit is, you know, the ever increasing appetite amongst certain sections of the press and certain sections of the electorate to see asylum seekers being punished. And the government, by chasing this rabbit, is just making it race ahead even faster. So it's just like this mad dance that goes on and on and on. And when you look at the way in which the situation has deteriorated, so you had asylum seekers first being housed in B&Bs, which were outside of major population centers, quite isolated, far away from community, housing B&Bs, which had real safety and hygiene concerns. Then it was disused army barracks. Then it was, you know, Manston. Now it's tents. Now it's barges. What's what's next? Is it going to be prisons, disused prisons? Is it going to be outer space? Like, when are you going to admit that being nasty to asylum seekers has reached its limit? That, that you just can't go any further. Um, I fear that we haven't hit that limit yet. Let's move on to our next story. If you'd hoped that getting older might mean that you get a little bit less exploited under capitalism, the Tories have some news for you. If you're over 50, grab a bike and start working as a delivery rider. That's what Work and Pension Secretary Mel Stride said while visiting, surprise, surprise, Deliveroo's London headquarters. The Times interviewed Stride and they write this. Asked if the over 50s should apply for jobs traditionally seen as being for younger people, Stride replied, there are loads of great opportunities out there for people. And it's of course good for people to to consider options they might not have otherwise thought of. He said of firms such as Deliveroo, 
What we're seeing here is the ability to log on and off anytime you like. No requirement to have to do a certain number of hours over a certain period of time, which is driving huge opportunities. From an employer's point of view in a tight labor market, it's absolutely essential if you want to access all the available talent that you provide as flexible an offer as you can. Translation, the precarious conditions of the gig economy shouldn't just apply to young people and migrants. They're fun for all the family. And look, this is just the standard corporate speak for making insecure working conditions sound desirable. Delivery riders don't have the same rights as workers who are directly employed. And that means that one in three end up earning less than the minimum wage per shift with no sick pay or holiday pay. And that doesn't seem to matter much to Melstride, as the interview makes clear. He seems pretty taken in by the very deliberate and curated show put on for him by Deliveroo's PR department. The Times explain here. He, as in Stride, said he found himself identifying with Abdul Javed, 51, a delivery rider who had lost 10 kilograms since taking up the job. Javed, a grandfather based in Kingston-upon-Thames in southwest London, said, It can help with fitness, it can help with flexibility, it can help with fitting into a part of their life where it serves a useful purpose, amongst other things, and not every kind of job offers that. The way Mel Stride tells it, working for Deliveroo is like going on a cycling holiday, except you get paid for it. And it's a bit like how people talk about fruit picking, oh it's nice, it will get you outside, without any acknowledgement of what doing that work is like in reality. An Australian study published last year found that food delivery cyclists are more likely than recreational cyclists to get injured on the roads, and that such injuries are likely going unreported. And last year, a study by University College London connected the increased risk of accident and injury to delivery riders' insecure working conditions. That UCL study says this. Freelance delivery riders are more likely than directly employed riders, To have report that time pressure from their employer means they are more likely to speed, 56% versus 39%, or ride through red lights, 21% versus 12%. They are also more likely to report being distracted by their phone, through which they accept jobs, 57% versus 21%. Gig riders are three times as likely to report damage to their vehicle in a collision, at 25% versus 7% for employed riders. They are nearly twice as likely to report an injury, either to themselves or someone else involved in the collision, at 11% versus 6%. So, although Mel Stride and Deliveroo are pitching the gig economy as a keep-fit side hustle, the reality is that being a delivery rider is stressful, poorly paid, and sometimes dangerous work. Stride's comments today come as part of a wider government mission to get the so-called economically inactive back into work. This is from The Times again. About 8.6 million people, equivalent to one in five working adults, are classed as economically inactive, according to the Office for National Statistics. More than 3.4 million of them are over 50, but under the retirement age. The figures are of acute concern because of the strain they have already placed on a labour market where many employers are struggling to recruit. The Bank of England has warned that the situation will make high inflation persist. But look, it's not that over 50s have suddenly decided that work sucks and they'd rather not do it. It's that more and more people amongst the population at large, and over 50s in particular, physically can't. This is from The Guardian, long-term sickness leaving 1.6 million UK adults over 50 unable to work. 
when you combine the fact of long-term illness, things like stress, ill health, with the fact that over 50s tend to have more household wealth, so they're able to retire early, I'm not really sure where this massive pool of over 50s who need the money but are just not working for some reason are going to be found. But hey, I'm not a member of the government. There's also the problem of the broken social care system. Many over 50s find themselves sandwiched between two generations in need of care, their elderly parents or their kids and grandkids. 60% of unpaid carers are over 50. And in some age brackets, it can be as many as one in five women and just over one in eight men. So the idea that there's millions and millions of over 50s who really need money, currently choosing not to work because they simply can't be asked, is a load of nonsense. James, explain to me what's going on here. Why does the government want granddad to deliver my depression takeaways? Oh, the key to it was uh, something Mel Stride hinted at when he was talking about a tight labour market and that second paragraph from the Times spelled out, which is uh, when they say tight labour market, what they mean is there are more vacancies, there are more jobs out there than there are people willing to do them. And what does that do? Other things being equal, it starts to give a little bit more power back to the people who have to do the work. Because if there's lots of people wanting to do the work and there's only a few of you, you have a bit more bargaining power. And that can start to turn into you personally are able to ask more money. It can turn into you being able to join a union and organise more effectively. And when the Bank of England says, oh, it's a risk for inflation, what they mean is it's a risk for wages going up. That's what they're about here. What they want to do is get lots and lots of people back into the labour market so they can suppress wages, so they can hold down how much people are getting paid. And if that involves sort of badgering and cajoling and making life more unpleasant for a bunch of over 50s who are exactly, as you say, in many cases, long term sick, can't actually work. It's not sitting around doing this out of choice. I mean, some people did choose to do this. And by the way, if somebody decides to take early retirement coming out the other side of, of COVID or whatever, and some people have done that, good luck to them. Good for everyone else. Gets them out of the labour market. Means somebody else might get, might get slightly more pay as a result. It's good that people are choosing to do this. What we need to do with long-term sick is provide ways to look after them, not kind of badger them and make up fake stories about how wonderful it is to ride for Deliveroo or whoever. This is it's just sort of nonsensical. And it's so naked. I think, what's actually being done here and what they're trying to do in terms of getting the labour market shifted hard back in favour of employers and against employees. That kind of answers my question, but maybe you could explain it like you're talking to a five-year-old, which in economic terms you basically are. How does this sit up against the Bank of England putting up interest rates again, in part to drive up unemployment? Because to me, that seems like a bit of a contradiction. You're trying to get so-called economically inactive over 50s into work, but you're also trying to increase unemployment because that's going to drive down inflation. So how do these two things work together? The mechanism here is that what you want is lots and lots of people searching for work and busily trying to find work and not able to get it rather than this category which has grown. And it's, it really is driven by a long-term sickness in the main of economically inactive where you're not looking for work. You're kind of no longer part of how the labour market operates. Once you have a large number of people who are unemployed and that every single vacancy out there is lots and lots of people chasing after it, that means the people in work are suddenly quite scared about becoming unemployed because there's a lot more of them. You're scared about being unemployed. You don't necessarily go to your boss and say, give me a pay rise. You don't necessarily join a union and collectively say, give me a pay rise. You may not go and strike if you're in a union because you're worried about losing your job now. That's the mechanism. It's a way of disciplining people who work. And what the government wants, and they're fairly, I think, 
quite blunt about this. You want a bunch of over 50s who aren't working at the minute to get back into the labor market properly, go looking for work as a way of disciplining everybody else who does have to work. And so keeping wages down, and of course, as we've seen, keeping profits nice and high. How does the system of care fit into this? Because when I was reading about this, I was thinking about my mum. She recently retired. And one of the reasons why she took retirement is that it means she's able to pitch in and look after my niece because my niece, both her parents work. And, you know, she may have wanted to work for a few more years, but ultimately there are care needs in her family. She spent the years before that looking after my grandmother and that meant she had to exit the labor market. Um, why is it never the case when we're talking about, oh, our over 50 is leaving work too soon, that Governments aren't talking about this wider picture of the reasons why people might be dropping out of work, not simply because they're like, I've had enough, I've got enough money, fuck this, but because actually there are demands on their time, demands on their labor coming from within the family. Well, exactly that. But once you start to talk about these sort of pressures, it starts to become something that maybe government has to act on. Maybe they have to put a bit more money into our social care system and, and every other part of, of the care system we have. Grossly underfunded, chronic for insecure work when people are getting paid, massively reliant, as your statistics said, on a whole bunch of people doing a whole load of unpaid work, often in not particularly good conditions themselves. If the government's talking about this, they might end up having to do something about it, and that involves spending money and uh, some costs for them. Instead, they're just dumping it on wider society. They know full well that a great chunk of this is long-term sick, but they don't want to have to deal with long-term sick people. They don't want to have to deal with the 100,000 or so people who have long COVID on the IFS figures who aren't entering the labor market each week because of this. They don't want to have to deal with any of that stuff. They want to dump all the care costs over here and force everyone they can possibly get hold of back into work over there because this is cutting costs. It's cutting costs of care because you're dumping on people and saying, do unpaid care instead of a decently funded care system. And you're cutting costs, ideally for employers, because you're holding wages down, wages down well below the rate of inflation. That's all there is to it. I don't think it's it's particularly sophisticated. I don't think it's a good way to run an economy, let alone a whole society. But This is what's driving the government onwards on this point. Just going to have a look at some of your comments. Gavin Reed with £19.99. Thank you so much, Gavin, who says, keep up the amazing work. You bring perspective and clarity at a much needed time in our history. Always stay strong and true to calling out the truth and helping us see. Love to Navara team. Thank you. Love to you also. Um, speaking of spreading the love, before we wrap up, I would like to say a very happy birthday to Fox, our producer, who is glaring at me from across the studio. Um, Fox, who I like to refer to as an iron fist in an iron glove, is the reason why this show is broadcast to you week in, week out, and is a relatively reasonable and rational you know, product now. When we first started out, we were in a shipping container, sweating through our eyeballs and Fox took charge. And now we are in a kind of air conditioned room. It's great. So happy birthday, Fox. Um, and thank you, James, for joining me tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure as always. And thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.